Be advised, Blue Rose Task Force is filled with secrets and spoilers. Welcome to the Blue Rose Task Force Podcast, where we look deeply into Twin Peaks as a whole, one episode at a time, using the full scope of the show Twin Peaks and all its official media. We don't use the word canon, but we consider all official releases important because Lynch and Frost have approved their presence. And we welcome all input into the collective consciousness that is the Twin Peaks community and wider universe. This podcast is a watch-along podcast for those who've seen all of Twin Peaks, including the third season, which we consider as we go along. Today, we're looking at the 20th overall episode of Twin Peaks, episode 19, known, often known, depending where you look, as season 2, episode 12, episode 20, or what the German regionalization team named The Black Widow. I'm your host, John. In episode 19, Ben Horn builds a giant tower out of his office furniture, then recruits Bobby to take pictures of Hank's dealings, which Audrey steals to help Cooper clear his name. Cooper and Denise use said pictures to recruit Ernie into a sting operation at Dead Dog Farm, while Ben begins rewriting the Civil War. Dick almost gets flattened by a car and convinces Andy little Nicky could be the devil. Lana entrances all the men in town after her new husband Dougie dies. Nadine beats the hell out of Mike so he'd date her. Catherine toasts to herself, and Cooper ponders Wyndham Earl's actions. At Norma share a moment, Malcolm gives James troubling backstory on Evelyn, who James is definitely attracted to, and Colonel Riley investigates Major Briggs' White Lodge-related disappearance shortly before Briggs come, you know, comes back, appearing before Betty and Bobby, who are sharing a wonderful family moment together, despite the impending dread on the horizon. So the questions we have from a wide view <laughs> of Twin Peaks is, uh, what questions, how is Cooper tapped into the supernatural? How is delusion affecting characters? How does human connection enhance characters? And before we start looking at that through the wide lens all the way through season three, we are going to look at it from the production history at the time it was being made. So the episode was written by Harley Payton, who had become the de facto showrunner probably around now, as Mark Frost does leave for Storyville sometime in this general vicinity. And, um, yeah, so he's the head writer at the moment and Robert Engel, uh, well, Robert Engels is also writing and he's like Peyton's number two. <laughs> so we've, we've got the team that isn't Mark Frost, but is closest to Twin Peaks writing it. And we've got it directed by Caleb Deschanel and Deschanel's last, uh, this is his last of three Twin Peaks episodes. And um, what I think is interesting is he kind of gets this middle episode 
uh, specialty. You know, he got the one right before the season one finale, so he was queuing up a, a conclusion there. Uh, he got the one between episodes 14 and 16, which kind of, uh, you know, it, it's right between the, the climax of Lynch's killer reveal and um, Hunter's uh, end of the the Leland arc. And, um, you know, then we've got this one, which is the middle episode of the last Jean Renault story. So, you know, I mean, you know, <laughs> I'm I, I'm saying it more fractally than in order of importance. But, um, yeah, it's it's interesting that um, that Deschanel always gets an episode to queue up something that's going to just blow wide open. And honestly, not much is said about this very specific episode, but um as the first draft was in early October, um, I suspect this suffered from the same rewrites that, um, you know, they had to change for the planned Audrey Cooper romance related scenes. So, you know, like maybe that one with, um, with Bobby and Audrey would have been something where Cooper could have popped in. But, you know, of course, by this point, it got repurposed and redone so much that it only fits the current plan. Of, you know, plot lines anyway. About Major Briggs' aviator uniform at the end, uh, Don Davis had this to say in Essential Wrapped in Plastic. And uh, the audio of this is actually in the Twin Peaks Unwrapped episode with John Thorne uh, revealing the actual tapes of, um, of Don Davis' interviews. And Davis said, We rented the aviator outfit from a field museum. It had been worn by Gary Cooper. I was warned it was much more valuable than I was. It was four sizes too small, so I took great care not to breathe deeply. But as far as the um, the aviator uniform, probably one of the more polarizing props in this um, in this part of the season has shown up, and it's the Confederate flag in Ben's office, um, and you know Ben's Confederate uniform here as well, and. Um, I I think it's about time to talk about the American Civil War. In September of 1990, like the you know weeks before this episode began being written, um, you know Ken Burns' documentary, the the Civil War, aired on PBS, and the whole nation was actually talking about it, um, in, including the minds of the uh, Twin Peaks staff. Um, you know, Scott Frost, he had a quote about it that, you know, it's like, yeah, everybody's getting into the Civil War. <laughs> so I, I think he was being a little bit facetious about it. But um, the other guys, no, they, they were riding that energy all the way into storylines. Um, the quick gist of the American Civil War, and I'm going to I'm going to destroy a ton of nuance on this. But, um, yeah, the. um the the western territories of america had been acquired but they hadn't become states in the union yet but um there was a debate um you know between between the states that already were part of the union whether slavery would be allowed in the new territories uh you know the northern free states were absolutely against it and the southern slave states wanted it the slave states you know their their economy was based around slave labor would have to modernize and change their whole way of life if abolition happened. And uh, abolition was gaining traction, and they were getting a little bit fearful about it. Uh, when Abraham Lincoln got elected, uh, who was all about, you know, standing for abolition, the, um, 
you know, he got elected and the, the states that didn't want that at all saw the direction on the wall and uh, decided to secede from the Union and become the Confederacy. Uh, you know, which which no foreign government actually recognized during the years of the war from 1861-1865. The slave states eventually were focused around white nationalism, or or, I mean, um, not eventually, essentially, (laughs) were focused around white nationalism, while the free states wanted uh, American nationalism and wanted the Union to remain at all costs. So, I mean, that's essentially queuing up the conflict right there. And the Burns documentary focused on letters and other firsthand accounts that they could find to tell the story in a more varied way. Now, Clay Dockery, in his 25YL article, All Are Our Hearts Still Touched by Fire? A Revaluation of Ken Burns' The Civil War, had this to say. Burns is also very interested in telling the story with as many different viewpoints included as possible. The Southerners are lifted up and humanized throughout the run. There are many letters from Confederate soldiers throughout the series. Confederate officers like Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson are presented in a fairly reverential way. For the series, this is important because it both fleshes out the story and allows the dramatic narrative to flourish, but for history, this may have done a grave disservice. The Lost Cause narrative version of history really started to gain traction around the turn of the century, the 19th century into the 20th. And this is where I'm going to cut in and explain the Lost Cause of the Confederacy. Um, Again, you know, this is uh, extremely (laughs) uh, slimmed down, but um, it's a it's an American pseudo historical negationist mythology that claims the cause of the Confederate states during the American Civil War was just, heroic, and not centered on slavery. First enunciated in 1866, it has continued to influence racism, gender roles, and religious attitudes in the South to the present day. Lost cause proponents typically praise the traditional culture of honor and chivalry of the antebellum South. They argue that enslaved people were treated well, and deny that their condition was the central cause of the war, contrary to statements made by Confederate leaders such as the Cornerstone speech. Instead, they frame the war as a defense of states' rights and as necessary to protect their agrarian economy against supposed northern aggression. The Union victory is thus explained as a result of its greater size and industrial wealth, while the Confederate side is portrayed as having greater morality and military skill. Modern historians overwhelmingly disagree with these characterizations, noting that the central cause of the war was slavery, which it was. Two intense periods of lost cause activity were around the turn of the 20th century, when efforts were made to preserve the memories of dying Confederate veterans and during the Civil Rights Movement in the 1950s and 60s. In reaction to growing public support for racial equality, through actions such as building prominent Confederate monuments and writing history textbooks, Locke's cause organizations, including the United Daughters of the Confederacy and Sons of Confederate Veterans, sought to ensure Southern whites would know that what they called the true narrative of the Civil War. 
and therefore continue to support white supremacist policies such as Jim Crow laws. In that regard, white supremacy is a central feature of the Lost Cause narrative. Now I'm going to go back to Dockery's article. The Daughters of the Confederacy were commissioning statues around the country in honor of Confederate generals. Textbooks in the South completely retold the history of the Civil War as the War of Northern Aggression. Throughout the 20th century, especially in the South, this became the predominant mode of thinking and talking about the Civil War. In the 1950s, in order to protest against the rising tide of civil rights and decisions like Brown versus the Board of Education of Topeka, 1954, the southern states started raising the battle flag of the American... Uh, oh, boy. <laughs> Southern states started raising the battle flag of the Army of Northern Virginia above state houses and adding the symbol to their state flags. In the minds of many Southern white people, the flag became about the very act of rebellion itself, and the rebel flag took on its own cultural mythos, a mythos entirely subsumed in and guided by a latent notion of white supremacy and a mythical cultural heritage. All of this contributed to a cultural understanding of the Civil War as one in which the poor white Southerners fought against tyrannical Northern oppressors. These viewpoints are woven within much of the writing about the war in the 20th century, particularly in the epic three-volume history, The Civil War, A Narrative by Shelby Foote, and Shelby Foote is a key figure in Ken Burns' The Civil War. He is interviewed, quoted, and relied upon most often by Burns and the team throughout the series. Foote is usually considered more of a layperson historical novelist than an official historian by other historians, but I feel like the details of these precise issues are best left for a different day. There is no doubt that Foote is a fascinating storyteller, yet, far too, yet at far too many turns, his viewpoint becomes the central one. And when that happens, the Lost Cause narrative gets much greater spotlight on it than it should. Foote becomes a star of the series, his books are given a feeling of primacy, and his voice starts to feel authoritative all of which makes the more questionable parts of his work come into sharper focus. He explicitly states slavery was not the cause of the war. It was. He laments the lack of compromise that led to the war, a compromise that free black people, slaves, and abolitionists absolutely could not and should not abide. His contributions, and Burns centralizing them, makes the entire project suspect in many ways and may have led in some part to the prevailing ideas that haunt us to this day. And now I'm back as your host. Um, you know, yet it's this lost cause narrative that took a front and center approach in Twin Peaks for a little while. Uh, Mark Frost in Reflections said, I'm a big Civil War buff, and I thought the idea of Ben seeing himself as Robert E. Lee, I mean Lee, the most decorated and noteworthy general of the Confederacy, is the poster figure for lost causes and doomed gallantry. That was, it, that was an interesting aura for Ben to invest in. Ben has a very grandiose self-conception to begin with, so I thought it, it, so I thought it fit perfectly. It was also a way to do a kind of chamber piece about somebody cracking up in an interesting way, and we had some fun with it. 
So we have Ben, you know, Ben Horn here to now has admitted to sleeping with a teenager and we'd seen him, you know, plan and essentially commit arson and attempt to kill business associates. And, you know, his taking Lee's visage as a noble, as, as a nobility, it really matches better than you'd first think, you know, defining, defining Ben Horn's past as noble, but doomed probably helps him live with himself as he breaks down more into this fantasy scenario against all the actual atrocities that he was committing while getting his business to run at its peak form. So, um, you know, he's rewriting the past so that even people who do bad things to maintain their power and station can actually come out as, um, you know, winners, even as they lose, you know, so like his, his descent and that, that false, um, that fake lost cause narrative over the top of actual truth actually matches up nicely, um, you know, thematically. And, you know, sure, I mean, it sucks seeing the Confederate flag out there, but you, you figure Dukes of Hazard is still on the, you know, TNN, the Nashville network, rerunning, um, and it's only been off the air for five years. And, uh, yeah, so, I mean, the uh, the Confederate flag was just kind of part of the landscape because the Lost Cause narrative really was of a force that... Um, was being portrayed even in our television, even in our fun television. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, it was less of a political statement. It seems like than just, you know, writing the cultural air of the day, but at least twin peaks kind of used it in a way that fit more into delusion rather than, Hey, this is actually true. Uh, yeah. So anyway, we've got, end results of this episode it aired on january 12th of 1991 which was the first episode of 1991 it, it aired about it aired a few a uh, few days shy of being a month from the last episode um you know the the, the um the seasonal holidays um happened in between then and um you know this actually happens a few days before operation desert storm began and started hijacking and preempting everything so um but yeah, it was, um, <clears throat> so that, that didn't affect anything right here, but, um, we are at 10.3 million viewers, which is down almost 2 million from episode 18's 12.3. Yeah, this is, this is essentially the last one that I watched live up until those, uh, last two episodes of, of the season. Um. You know, I, I definitely rem remember things like, you know, Dick at the car and Nikki's uh, in the Nikki thought balloon where he's the devil. And, you know, maybe there's this vague memory of Audrey being happy about becoming an agent one day. But beyond that, it was all essentially a surprise when I saw it again in 1995 on Bravo. So, you know, um, it, it's possible I didn't see another frame of Twin Peaks until episode 27. So it... um the the momentum was you know there, there wasn't enough momentum in this episode to get me to continue with it but you know if this was on streaming or whatever i would have just totally kept going with it just like all the um just like all the newbies on the twin peaks recap podcast so uh yeah i don't know no um 
<laughs> no positive or negative on the uh, the quality of this episode because you know as as we'll see there's still a lot of solid stuff in here that uh, works pretty well with Twin Peaks as a whole. Now we've got um, w- now we're gonna look into what um, David Lynch basically had to say about this with the Log Lady intro that happened in 1993 or um, yeah it was 1993. Margaret says, Is a dog man's best friend? I had a dog. The dog was large. It ate my garden, all the plants, and much earth. The dog ate so much earth, it died. Its body went back to the earth. I have a memory of this dog. The memory is all I have left of my dog. He was black and white. So, you know, I I think... Essentially, it's riffing on the name Dead Dog Farm. You know, ate so much that it died. You've got Appetite, which, you know, reminds me of the um, the Ring of Satisfaction that is, I mean, the, the, the golden ring that is Appetite and Satisfaction. Um, but here, it's kind of like Nadine's Appetite. And, you know, she'll, you know, it, it goes from being a cute delusion where she's cocooning into a thing where she's kind of not treating the people around her quite like people, you know, it's like she, she essentially attacks, um, Mike Nelson into being with her. So, you know, it's like, I kind of see that as an appetite of, of, you know, overdoing. And, you know, we've got Ben in here doing the same kind of thing. Um, the, the dog's body going back to the earth, you know, once done, it returns to the ground, but, also, you know, the, the Briggs cycle, you know, he's, um, he's home from the White Lodge, essentially. Um, you know, when, when he was done in one realm, he returned to another. The, the words, I have a memory of this dog, you know, memory keeps it alive in a way to us. And, um, you know, when, when they're gone, that's all we've got. Unless, say, like, um, you know, th- this could be like a, a precursor to like the belief that ends up creating the Tulpa concept in future, uh, in, in the future season. <clears throat> and then it ending on he was black and white. Well, you know, balance good and bad, you know, that that's how memories are the same as everything else. You know, it's like there's good and there's bad. And in, in each individual, even dogs, there's both. So that's all we've got in that part of the episode. And now we're going to move forward into the actual Twin Peaks episode that we're looking at. But first, we're going to get some words from our fellow podcasters at the Ruminations Radio Network. Hey, kids, it's Don Shanahan from the Cinephile Hissy Fit, one of the podcasts on the Ruminations Radio Network. If you've been enjoying this show, come listen to Will Johnson and I fight it out over cinema's best and worst on Cinephile Hissy Fit. Find us and all the great shows over on RuminationsRadioNetwork.com. All right, well, welcome back. Here we are looking at the episode as a whole, and we're going to look into the first question, which is how is Cooper tapped into the supernatural? And really, how do we see some of the supernatural still creeping into this episode? So the first time we see Cooper, he's in flannel here in the um, in the conference room at the at the sheriff station with Irene Littlehorse. She's the um, she's the agent who um, who's you know giving him uh, 
home properties to to look into. And, you know, Little Horse, I don't really think that has any anything to compare with, you know, the White Horse or anything. I think it was just a name that was on their mind at the time. Um, so, yeah, Cooper's in flannel here. It's the first time we saw him in it since he um, since he was there on the camping trip with Briggs when Briggs got abducted. So, um, yeah, there, there might be some juxtaposition there, but, um, yeah, I don't know. Um, as far as Irene, she's Native American, so she has some knowledge of legends, but, um, she also, you know, she also doesn't send Cooper into scenarios on purpose. You know, she's more in touch with the town than being an expert in all this lore. And honestly, I think her casting is a concern of, for rep, uh, yeah, for representation on on the minds of the people who made Twin Peaks, honestly, you know, it's like how there's Denise in a way, but you know, more like, you know, the, re the wrestling coach, Buck Wingate, you know, he's, he's a black man and the air force is Colonel Riley also being black. Man. You know, there, there's a thing about, um, you know, we, we actually do start seeing a little bit more representation here in a, um, you know, in a, in a less, um, you know, coded way than say like Josie. So it's not Irene being the, um, the wise the the wise indian or whatever whatever the trope was um back around then you know it's it's not that it you know who's really steering cooper's path into the supernatural here is the giant and his ilk because you know it's like he's looking at these manila folders of house properties you know that and that's how you looked for houses pre-internet is you had the manila folders with the pictures of the houses and some notes on it um and, uh, you know, Cooper, he says, I'd like to see both, you know, and so it comes down to a coin flip and, you know, we get the echoey saxophone, we get the close up on it spinning in the air in a slower speed. And it's quite a bit like the Cooper's, like, like Cooper's ring from the giant in episode 16, uh, you know, with the, um, with the cinematography, um, and and this this ring hits a ceramic donut plate so it hits you know the 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 fuel for cops um and it bounces on the wood table with you know wood um like you know margaret you know they're in touch with that kind of stuff um and then it ends up spinning perfectly for a while onto a third property on on a third property's picture um and you know irene says oh i thought i'd taken that one out and um she says that property is called dead dog farm and it's worse than it sounds you know cooper asks her what is it and then she says a puzzle no one ever really stays there long and um you know cooper smiles at this and says when can i see it and you know he can't not smile at a case needing to be cracked and he can't avoid puzzles you know it's like this just sets off his energy big time but the quality of that spin of his ring you know the 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 imagery they use as that ring spins over to it and the echoey saxophone sounds you know that this is basically lodge alignment happening here you know the the lodge aligned forces are sending cooper to a place that ends up holding the answers for his current situation and you know they're not answering the dilemma for him but they're sending him on a path you know one stone at a time where you know to a place where he can actively do something to help himself you know they get him there halfway now is the giant and um his aligned forces doing it 
you know, while they have Briggs in their possession, essentially, because there's some sort of plan afoot, um, you know, do they need Cooper and Briggs to level up around the same time so that Cooper can enter the Lodge trial, you know, where the giant is in episode 29, and so that Briggs can go in and save Cooper when it doesn't, you know, go extremely well, which was kind of the plan, um, at episode 29 was that Briggs was going to be one of the major contributors and getting him out of there. You know, at this point, it's a little bit early for actual plot, but I, I find it interesting that, you know, where Briggs is while this part of Cooper's um, plot is actually happening, you know, or is do Cooper doing the normal thing, which at the time, I think the writers were intending um, that, you know, he's tapping into his intuition and using Lodge Space as a tool for his own ends. And, you know, even though there's no conspiracy, there's enough of Cooper's hubris at work that, you know, he'll end up at episode 29 without the Lodge's planning. So, um, yeah, there's ways to see this as Cooper using the Lodge or the Lodge using Cooper. And um, either way works. And honestly, it's probably six of one, half a dozen of the other. Now, about the Dead Dog Farm location, you know, there, there's a for sale sign taped up on a tree. It's a dilapidated house. Um, and Nightlife in Twin Peaks track is playing uh, in the soundtrack, which used to freak me out pretty good. So, like, you know, you've, you know that there's looming dark energy around if you hear that song playing. And Irene makes a joke about, well, it's still standing. And Cooper says, well, there's a strong foundation. And then Irene does pull out a legend here. She says, it's an old legend. Of all the people in the world, the best and the worst are drawn to dead dog. Most turn away. Only those with the purest of heart can feel its pain. And somewhere in between the rest of us, or in somewhere in between, the rest of us struggle. So that right there is kind of an encapsulation of what I think season three is doing, if I ever heard any. So thematically, like, you know, we're, we're fitting in Twin Peaks in the same kind of deal. You know, only, only the people with the purest heart can actually feel empathy for others. And, um, you know, it's like, if you're, if you're kind of stuck in between, like where you do have, you know, the good and the bad trying to win out, we're going to struggle with places like Dead Dog Farm. Or, you know, the world. Anyway, in the scene, we've got the house. It hasn't been shown for a while as a, as a, as a real estate property. Yet we've got tracks for a Jeep, a four-wheeler, and luxury sedan. Um, you know, they go in, and Irene says, it's open. And Cooper, <laughs> Cooper gives a hello way before the slots machines in part four. Um, you know, there's been a meeting in the past few hours. There's no running water, which allows them to um, figure out that there's baby laxative in the sink. Um, and then there's white powder on the chair itself, which proves to be cocaine. And, um, you know, Cooper basically ends the scene saying, Irene, we have to tell the sheriff. So the coin led Cooper to the answer that he was looking for, but that's as far as the help will take him. What he does with that is. You know, what, what he does with that is up to his own personal responsibility and actions, and he starts taking action here. Later on, we see Cooper at the Great Northern in his room, and, you know, it's, it's his mouth in a close-up dictating to Diane. And we've got him talking about, the uh, you know, the personal column in the newspaper, which is his response to Earl's opening move. 
But then he says, but I've already received my response to this yesterday. He anticipated my response to his move perfectly. He's toying with me, Diane. I wonder where he is and what he's planning. And, you know, I mean, this could be a timey-wimey thing, like how, you know, 25 years later happened in a dream last season, or how, you know, Briggs has World War I pilot garb, you know, in this very episode. And then Cooper says, Meanwhile, I've spent the past two days without badge and gun the best way I know how to, occupying both body and spirit. Looked into some real estate with uh, what the local agent charitably refers to as a fixer-upper. Nonetheless, it's the kind of place where a man might make a home, raise a family, which is something in spite of past, in spite of my past, I still hope I'm able to do. So, you know, we've got, you know, Dougie Jones days still ahead of him. And, um, you know, could this be the beginning of that hope? Uh, you know, the expressed hope, like, coming out? Um, is Dougie not just a tulpa, but the hopes side of himself? You know, things to think about. But then we've got the echoey saxophone cue again. And, um, Cooper goes on and says, however, as the case here in Twin Peaks, as is the case here in Twin Peaks, even this bucolic hideaway is filled with secrets, secrets that may be connected to my trouble at the Bureau and the cocaine that was found in my automobile. Agent Hardy's deliberations will soon be completed, and if I'm not adequately able to defend myself, there's a real possibility of imprisonment. And then he holds his bookhouse patch in front of him and, you know, kind of studies it for a little while, almost like he's possibly, like, meditating on something. Like, you know, you know like, how am I going to find the answer? And this is when he gets a knock at the door, you know, an invocation, a call for help. Uh, being answered. I mean, even if it wasn't an actual call for help or a prayer or anything, we've got Audrey there, you know, as if delivered by fate. You know, and she's holding Bobby's envelope and she says, This is for you. I stole it. Pictures my father paid for. I did good, didn't I? And, um, you know, we, we get the answer that this is why we had Audrey flirting with Bobby earlier this episode. She was waiting for Bobby to come around the corner to learn what he was doing using sexuality as a weapon, similar to how she used her wiles to get into one-eyed jacks and everything. So Audrey is still Audrey here. Um, and, you know, she finds out that he's on the payroll, has an envelope for her dad. Maybe she can, maybe she can help him celebrate after delivery and all that. But, um, yeah, like, uh, she ends up, she ends up essentially flirting with Bobby enough where he leans in for a kiss here. But, you know, she also pulls away and, um, you know, she, she thinks she should, she, uh, she thinks that Bobby and she should think about doing business together rather than this romance thing that she could tell Bobby was into. And, um, you know, Bobby cools off and goes into the office, but Audrey goes into the wall to spy, just like she's done in previous episodes as well, when she was, you know, the junior detective type. You know, when, once Bobby's in there, he keeps to his points, and, you know, he says, found Hank, got those pictures for uh, pictures you wanted, and, um, you know, it's like, um, you know, there, there's Hank with other visible faces, like Jean Renault and Ernie Niles, and, um, you know, then he says, you know, how much am I paying you? We haven't discussed money. Uh, we'll consider this your first raise. Come back tomorrow and we'll talk a full-time position. So, you know, like they're, they're 
working out a business transaction in there and audrey covers over her peephole at this point um and you know she's very serious this whole time you know she's not laughing like she was when Catherine slapped him or whatever you know it's like we don't see bobby and audrey flirt again after this because um okay hey, you know i think <laughs> i think the writers notice the lack of chemistry between those two and um you know b audrey got what she needed to figure out for her mystery of what bobby is doing and um and what bobby and her father are up to you know mostly she's trying to figure out what her father's up to and i think bobby is just you know the uh the 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 patsy in this situation for her but what we do see from audrey is you know we see her delivering these pictures and you know it seems really good for cooper so you know because because cooper is saying Audrey, you did better than good. You may have saved my life. And, you know, she is into that. You know, she <laughs> she says, you know, so that makes us even, right? And, um, you know, it's like, is, is, this, um, is this her actually still kind of on a junior investigator path? You know, it's like, who can exactly say? But I, um, I kind of think she is because, you know, then there's this other knock at the door and we get Denise there. And Denise is greeting Cooper with a big hug. And Audrey asks, you know, is she interrupting something? And, you know, like when, when she finds out that it's all business, then she's like, they have women agents. And, you know, of course, Denise says more or less. And um, Audrey is absolutely thrown. She kisses Cooper on the lips on the way out. And like, she's just so happy. You know, it's like this, this junior detective path that she's on has an end game now and she's thrilled with it. And then she, you know, leaves the room to let them do their business. And, you know, Cooper's shocked by this kiss, but he snaps back into business, you know, just like he, just like he uh, made eye contact with a llama. And, um, you know, they look at these pictures and it's Jean Renault, Hank Jennings, Norma's stepfather, as Cooper puts it, and Mountie King. So Cooper connects all of this together. And then he talks to Denise about finding cocaine in that kitchen. And he thinks it'll be a match. And, um, you know, Denise says, that'll be good news. But then Denise switches to a more, you know, switches to more important business. Exactly. How old is that girl? And, you know, he's smiling at Cooper this whole time, like you. But, um, you know, Cooper just, you know, shifts it right away from that and says, I would assume you're no longer interested in girls. And Denise says back, Coop, I may be wearing a dress, but I still put my panties on one leg at a time, if you know what I mean. And Cooper says, not really, as um, as the scene ends with Denise leaving. But but we've got Christopher Lieberman, who wrote our 25YL article, What It Means for Denise Bryson to Be Who She Is. Lieberman says, when Denise meets Audrey Horn, it is one of my favorite moments of the whole show. Audrey looks at Denise in awe and maybe a hint of jealousy. They have women agents, she exclaims. More or less, Denise replies. Cooper's remark that he'd assumed Denise was no longer interested in girls is aligned with historic misconceptions about transness and sexuality. It used to be believed that attraction to men was a necessary condition of being a trans woman and vice versa for trans men. This is quickly defied by Denise's, albeit cryptic, response. Since the 90s are, uh, yes, yeah, since the 90s, our understanding of homosexual attraction has changed, and fans have gladly seized the implications that Denise is not only openly trans, but openly gay too. 
So it's nice to see that sexual identity and sexual attraction are allowed to be two separate things. Um, and as far as where Denise goes from here, um, you know, next time we see her, it's at the double R and, you know, we see these high heeled shoes walking in and, you know, is it Audrey? And, you know, then I'm thinking, you know, I was like, is it Donna? And then, and then it's like, oh yeah, it's Denise. Because I, <laughs> it, It's a, it's a really fun reveal. You know, she walks straight into the diner, straight to Ernie's table. And, you know, that's when we see it's Denise and says, you know, I don't want to put the squeeze on you. You've been to prison. Um, and then, you know, while, while she's giving her pitch to Ernie, she's showing the surveillance photos. She's showing her badge. And, you know, talking about, you know, serious parole, uh, parole violation, enough to put you back inside unless you cooperate. I intend and and unless you cooperate, I intend to do everything in my power to make you stay there. You know, putting on lipstick the whole time and we get an immediate cut to possibly a cabin where, um, you know, there's a lightning storm outside and Ernie is stating his name, you know, he's confessing and it's all this bullshit about being scared for, and, you know, protecting, you know, protecting his family. It's all about his family, why he did all these bad things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and then finally he says what his role is, which is supposed to find a buyer for four kilos. And, you know, Denise says, you know, it's like, well, you found one or you found him. And, you know, he, he holds his hand, he holds Ernie's hand at the, or, you know, <laughs> um, uh, Denise holds Ernie's hand and, um, you know, they, they basically want to set up a meeting at Dead Dog Farm and Ernie asks, you know, who's the buyer? And, um, Denise says, you're looking at him and, um, you know, Ernie pulls his hand back like him. And then, you know, he like, you know, walks away all disgusted, you know, it's like, I got a nervous bladder and, um, <laughs> You know, what, that's kind of a joke at the time where, you know, it's like the ones that would be thrown by Denise, by, by Denise in a way, in a negative way, you know, they're, they're basically the unenlightened ones. And, um, you know, it's, it's done for laughs, like, you know, you know, serves you right, jerk, for holding a, for holding a trans person's hand. And, um, you know, here's something you can't handle. Um, but, you know, in, in, um, in Lieberman's article again, um, Lieberman says, in the case of Ernie Niles, Denise seems to enjoy freaking him out. You know, you're you're looking at him. You're you're looking at him. Him. Uh, sometimes I think recent concerns about correctness can lead to queer representation that is uncontroversial but lifeless. The key here is that the humor is mostly directed by Denise, not at her. And I would tend to agree with Lieberman's. Um, approach to that as far as i can tell that you know it does seem like denise you know did all that on purpose just to freak the guy out um uh, because he kind of deserved to get a little bit of uh, a push anyway here we are um we're gonna move on to the next question which is how is delusion affecting characters in in this episode so we're gonna start but not exactly in the order of importance i'm gonna look at little nicky you know, Dick Tremaine comes in with a fleece collar, long sleeve denim jacket, plus shorts. I mean, it, it's quite a look. And, uh, you know, we'll find out later that uh, little Nikki also has the exact same kind of outfit. And um, Ian Buchanan, uh, Dick's actor, in Reflections, told Brad Dukes that, I loved the whole idea of a mini-me. Dick, in his ignorance, deciding it would be very appealing to have a little brother dressed just like him. 
So he kind of thinks of little Nicky as a little brother rather than a son, which tracks with Dick, you know, with, um, with Dick's half committal to the, to the whole thing. And, um, you know, the whole committal to finding out that he's the devil. First time we see any of these folks, uh, Dick is walking into the, the sheriff's department lobby and, um, you know, he tells, uh, he tells Andy, Lucy and case manager, Judy Swain, um, you know, from the happy helping hands organization who are already there. He tells them the little nipper was so excited about the camping trip. I couldn't coax him out of the car. I love Dick Tremaine's goofy dialogue that makes no sense. And it doesn't even make sense inside the narrative. And yeah, yeah, he's just there for the fun, I guess. So anyway, Judy opens, um, you know, opens up everybody's eyes to his past. You know, she says in his past life, he has been confused and perhaps traumatized by a persistent random misfortune. And Dick says, looks like he's bounced around quite a bit. And, um, you know, this is, this is when the Laura Palmer theme actually starts playing here. You know, I mean, it means it must be ominous, right? So, you know, we're, we're cued to believe that, you know, sure. His parents were killed under mysterious circumstances and that this is probably going to be a problem for everybody. So, you know, we, we've established Nikki's life as threatened and, um, you know, possibly even that he's a threat to his parents. And I don't think anybody thinks it yet, but, you know, next scene, it looks like, you know, it's a picnic spot with a, you know, with, with the, uh, the blanket laid out just so and Dick Tremaine there reading a book, you know, I mean, it looks, it looks like that, but we find out it's because there's a flat tire and the book Dick is reading is an instruction manual for changing the tire. And, um, yeah, you know, then we've got Nikki in the driver's seat completely messing with him. You know, he's turning the steering wheel and, you know, he, we get a couple of Nikki, stop that please, you know, to get him to pause. But, you know, then Nikki just starts up again because, you know, in this world, a 10 year old is apparently like a six to seven year old. <laughs> and, um, you know, this time Nikki adds the wipers and the horns and, you know, eventually, uh, Dick gets so fed up with it. He's like, Nicholas, get out of the car multiple times and louder as he goes. And Nikki comes around the back of the car and, um, behind Dick too. So, like, Dick is actually between him and the car. And, um, you know, uh, Nikki says, Uncle Dick, are you mad at me? And he says, no. And then he's like, scared you, didn't I? So, you know, he's he's a little scamp again. And, um, you know, he goes off. Uh, the the uh, Little Nikki goes off, um, you know, like maybe 10 feet away or something. And then he looks over his shoulder back at Dick. And... Um, it almost looks like Nikki is willing something to happen. And, um, you know, this is when the tire falls off and Laura's theme plays again. So, you know, mysterious circumstances once more. And, uh, you know, Nikki runs right over to him and hugs Dick tightly. And, you know, he starts saying, what if you died? You're not going to die, are you? So was that Nikki actually worrying something about what would happen to Dick into actual reality? Um, you know, this is kind of what Dick seems to worry about, you know, fears taking on solidity or, you know, like him being possibly crushed. And, you know, this close call with himself seems to, you know, change his mind and, you know, possibly frequency officially, 
after, you know, this mounting evidence that, you know, we've heard about already. And now Dick has experienced it. And, you know, we get Dick later on at the station worried, going right past Lucy, who notices him say, Andrew. And, you know, he finds Andy, whispers to him, I think we might have a problem. And, you know, little Nikki may be the devil or at least homicidal in the worst degree. We have to find out what happened to his parents. So, you know, what what this strikes me as is this was probably originally decided that, you know, it was going to be a comedy routine or, or, you know, like riffing off of the Omen kid. And, you know, this is, um, you know, like this is where, you know, the Omen kid would go after he killed his whole family. And like now they're trying to adopt him and move on with things. So, you know, I, I feel like it's that kind of archetype they're actually playing with for fun. And, um, you know, because... Um, because Andy is now thinking of Nikki as possibly homicidal. Um, this is where Andy's thought balloon shows up with Nikki in a devil costume with the fire burning, you know, which is um, really odd and way out of place, except for the fact that um, in episode one, we get that, that, um, that dreamy remembrance from James where he's, uh, you know, talking to, um, talking to Laura about, you know, it's like, because your skin is so soft and you smell so sweet or, you know, like, like a memory of something that obviously didn't happen. And yet it's right here in front of us in a, you know, quote unquote flashback. So, you know, memories kind of take a life of their own every once in a while. And, um, with Andy in particular, this actually also kind of makes sense because, you know, like these little movies is maybe the way Andy thinks. And that's why he gets a movie montage as a uh, as his vision from the fireman in part 14 of season three. And, you know, obviously this is kind of a retcon because, you know, there's only a couple of uh, memory, you know, like imaginations like that throughout the whole series and this one really stuck out to me for years but thematically it actually holds up a little bit better than i remember okay now we got lana so we're at the great northern we're looking at dougie milford who was shirtless in bed and dead and um you know we got doc hayward closing his eyes and says looks like he had a heart attack and you know harry answers looks like dougie went out with his boots on and um you know, there, there's books all over his bed and everything. And then Dwayne Milford enters the room to Harold's theme and, um, you know, that, that harpsichordy music. And, um, you know, he, he takes one of the, uh, the sexy time books from the bed and hands it to Harry and says, you know, here it is, the murder weapon. She might as well have blown his brains out with a rifle. And, you know, we get actual genuine grief from the mayor here. And uh, John Boylan, who plays him is a is absolutely fantastic in this role. I mean, not even not even just from those you know <laughs> those laughs at the end that are so you know perfect as punctuation, but um you know he he's just good all the way around. He knows how to make uh, Dwayne real, even though he's a comedy role. And um you know he says you know he never could say no to a woman, the old fool. And um Andy walks him out past Lana, and you know. <laughs> my my favorite line from him i think is you sexual adventurous you'll burn in hell for this and then you know she's a witch <laughs> and uh you know the mayor's ushered off screen and um you know we got lana actually talking to hawk like you know he's right i'm cursed 
And uh, then she tells the story how it all started back in high school. It was her prom date, had new braces, uh, rubber band snapped, his jaw locked up, and they spent the night in the emergency room. And then from there, it only got crazier every single time uh, she was with people. And, you know, Hawk is already kind of under his uh, under her spell and says, you know, I know a thing or two about curses you know um you know basically he could work on that cause or cur- you know breaking that curse and she asks you know are you the sheriff and then hawk says let's just say when something real big goes down i'm the man and you know the door he's leaning on of course opens right then and he falls in and andy's there looking like oh like really surprised so you know the um you know the the way of making hawk look bad while he's officially kind of you know smitten by her you know it 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 even starts to kind of add up you know the the curse is established by by Dwayne and it's corroborated by Lana herself but you know later on she's not really too worried about that you know we've got um later on at the uh, at the sheriff's station it's a scene with Doc Harry and the mayor in Harry's office and you know Doc Hayward officially says that he, uh, she, he, that Dougie died of natural causes, a heart attack, no evidence of foul play. And, um, you know, Dwayne's like, did you check for witchcraft? And, uh, you know, of course, you know, they can't do that. There's no way to test for it. And, uh, because there's no evidence, uh, Dwayne is not allowed to press charges because there is no official wrongdoing. And, um, he wanders out of the hall, out of the scene. And right after he walks out of the shot, um, we've got Hawk appearing out of the other room, you know, asking, uh, with, with Lana looking for Harry's bottle of Irish that, um, judge Sternwood asked about, um, to, uh, to put some milk, uh, to put in some milk for the widow Milford. So then we see this, uh, spell officially kind of cast on everybody. Like, like, um, like all the men are just falling in line, you know, literally we've got Andy, Dick, Harry, and Doc Hayward lined up in a row and um you know they're just all fawning at lana and you know dick dick starts saying oh she doth teach the torches to burn bright and you know so on and so forth and eventually um harry and doc chime in on a few of the lines like like you know like a greek chorus almost and um you know you know with, with some of the poem they're saying and um you know andy's fiddling with something in his hands while they're <laughs> while they're uh reciting and uh y- you could tell hawk's also enamored with lana even though you know she's just kind of looking off uh somewhere else you know completely distant and disinterested but you know is she kind of making something happen kind of like little nicky was or you know like little nicky possibly was later on we get that same exact shot I mean, you know, like the people fade away. It's like, you know, like a a time passes, but it's the same location thing. And we see Lucy coming around the corner looking for people. And then she takes a phone call. Paige is hairy. Uh, It doesn't get picked up. So she does the overhead announcement. Still not picked up. And then, you know, we get this uh, this great empty shot of the conference room, you know, like to kind of show like, you know, there's something evil afoot. (laughs) And, uh, you know, it's it's a good way to use the ominous as funny here. Um, but you know, it could also technically be Lucy's fear that she's all alone. Um, but anyway, she puts the call on hold when it rings back to her and then she kind of hears distant laughter of Lana and then she starts investigating and then she opens up Harry's office where 
we see Lana telling a story and all five men are just laughing and fawning. You know, even even Lucy's beloved Andy has eye contact for Lana, you know, and he's like going over to fill up her milk with the I mean, yeah, with the with the pitcher of milk into her cup. And, uh, you know, when when she sees Andy there, she goes. (gasps) (laughs) So, like, nobody is safe from the charms of Lana Milford. And, you know, like, what what is this goofy story? It has nothing to do with any of her drama or her curse or anything. She's obviously, like, changed her complete tune after that, like, probably uh, basking in the men's laughter. And, um, you know, she's telling the story, you know, it's like, well, what's underwear for? And, you know, then uh, she says something like they make him take his clown costume completely off. And that's when we get zero more context, because this is when Lucy slams the door to the office and it cuts to a different scene. But, yeah, so either the Irish whiskey is working, Lana's feeling better by taking her mind off things. She actually does have some kind of pheromone power, which I know Jacoby corroborates later, but I kind of think, you know, like that's just a way of lodginess to show up. Or she is a witch who delivers owl rings to various people, as is kind of implied when she shows up around all these famous people that happen to have an owl ring um, in Secret History of Twin Peaks and in Final Dossier. And under absolute coincidence, um, the actor Ricky Jay was wearing a gold ring with a green stone in it. You can see it on on the pinky finger of his right hand in his, you know, death scene, basically. And, um, you know, could that also be an owl ring? But it is on his right hand rather than his left. So, you know, maybe got one over on the uh, on the negative frequency that way or the people that, you know, harvest souls or garmin bosia or whatever it is maybe it needed to be on the left hand and he put it on his right hand which is why it's still there and didn't disappear like it did on raymond Monroe. um but you know anyway <laughs> you know th- this has absolutely nothing to do with intent at the time it just kind of works out nicely um yeah so you know maybe um if if we're looking at it from that kind of lodge space, you know, enacting plans, controlling power, that sort of thing. You know, maybe Lana was taking out a contact that would be there for, you know, helping Cooper in. And, you know, this will lead to Cooper possibly being easier to capture by the lodge in episode 29. Um, And, you know, maybe now that um, Lana is done with that assignment, maybe, you know, she's between assignments now so she can direct the power that the Owlrings have that she might have for her own sake for a while. Um, You know, I mean, probably more so. This was a riff on muses, you know, like um, inspiring men to create things and all that. Um, And, you know, it's like maybe an owl ring bearer is kind of like bringing dreams to life as well, because it seems like the owl ring really does just grant power to people. So um, it's not really unlike muses there either. And maybe that's why Lana got cast as a ring bearer um, by Frost in his novels. You know, who knows? Um, a lot to think about. And uh, I, I think it it's, it's a, a fun way to look at Lana's storyline the rest of the season, especially if you've ever been annoyed by her. <laughs> anyway, now I'm going to move over to James, who's um, 
in this little dark noir uh, pocket of the universe that he possibly drove into while looking away from his real problems. And um, what we have this time is, you know, he's in his room above the garage, and this is when he meets Malcolm Sloan, as in brother to Evelyn. And, um, you know, Malcolm, he's, he's um, you know, he, he says he's Marsh's driver. He says he's brother to Evelyn. Um, you know, James... James, you know, tells him that the car is repairable and um, Malcolm goes off on this thematically nice uh, way of saying things. He says, that's the nice thing about things. And, you know, he tells James that when she and Jeffrey fell in love, she got a new life and he got a new uniform and keys to the liquor cabinet. And um, he says his life's improved and Evelyn's learned all kinds of new skills like masking bruises and you know, like all this other stuff to basically, you know, hide the fact that he beats her, which sucks. You know, he says once a fortnight, Jeremy pounds her mercilessly, and then she tries to get even by breaking one of one of his things. So it perpetuates the cycle. And, um, you know, honestly, um, this part is probably all true uh, to how it actually works between Jeffrey and um, and Evelyn based on you know, based on the final scene that we see where Jeffrey and Evelyn really are having an argument across across the uh, courtyard or whatever it is. But, you know, why doesn't Malcolm stop it? You know, and they say, Sonny boy, nobody stops Mr. Marsh. That's a golden rule around here. You can jot that down and put it under your pillow. So you can kind of see the level of noir that Malcolm is supposed to have right here with that kind of line. Um and then he seems to genuinely thank James, you know, like about fixing the car, basically. Um, and you can kind of tell that James is mulling over this lack of justice here. And, um, you know, it's probably, you know, Malcolm's real intent to kill Jeffrey is really on the surface here. But he's hiding the fact that he's trying to bait James into doing something about it for him. Because, um, you know, James is a good kid and everybody can tell it. And Malcolm knows that, you know, James will want to do something. So, you know, he's he's giving the Patsy um, some things to be manipulated by, you know, even though they're, you know, probably real things. Anyway, the next scene we get with James, he's in the car. Uh, James starts it up. Evelyn's uh, standing next to him looking in the window. And, um, you know, he says, engine seems fine. Actual should be okay. And she asks, you know, how, how do you, how do you get to be so good at this? And she sidles in next to him and she's got a beer in her hand. And, um, you know, he credits his uncle Ed and everything, but then he shifts to what Malcolm talked about. You know, he says he talked to her brother about her situation and, you know, she says, mind your own business. But then he goes in with, you know, the, the themes of Twin Peaks, you know, it's like, are you afraid? Are you afraid of your husband? Are you? So he asks her three times in a row in different ways. And usually the truth follows from this kind of thing, except she kind of stonewalls him and says, there's nothing to talk about. And, um, you know, then James, you know, changes his, uh, his tack and says, I know what it's like to be alone. And then he like tilts his head on, on a 45 degree angle and then like slides in for a kiss without moving from there. And, um, you know, after they kiss a bit, you know, then he says, you're afraid of him, aren't you? Why don't you just leave? And then she says, it's complicated, but then there's more kissing. And, um, you know, d despite this angle, uh, you know, this odd angle of approach that he has in reflections, Annette McCarthy says, kissing James was like 
actually, I have to tell you, it was the real deal. He gave me that kiss and I went to Mars. And then James Marshall says, you know, she was really fun and a really good actress, aside from being an incredible kisser. So, so they really enjoyed that, <laughs> even though it doesn't necessarily come off as, you know, anything more than like a little bit awkward on the, um, on the actual screen. Anyway, while they're doing that, there's a honk, there's a horn honk at the end of the driveway. And, um, you know, they look down and, you know, the car is pulling up and that's Malcolm who must have given them an alert. And, you know, she says, oh, my God, it's him. I've got to go. And, you know, she's fixing her lipstick in the mirror and then, you know, tries to get him to stop worrying by saying it's not as bad as I made it out to be. And, you know, walks away. And then she goes to Jeffrey and, you know, gives him a kiss from you know far away while james is watching him from the car and you know i alluded to this earlier there's a rainstorm uh that um is also raining over in twin peaks at the time so you know it's like it must be close to twin peaks somehow despite being a long bike ride away but you know who knows maybe there's like some kind of reality distortion too like you cross over and you know everything might just be different you know who knows um but, you know, it, it's closer to Twin Peaks than you would initially think, unless that rainstorm pattern is really, really, really long. But, you know, there there is a certain amount of other weirdness, too, because even though there's this rainstorm, um, James can hear through his window and through, uh, Jane, uh, through uh, Jeffrey and Evelyn's window, um, he can hear Jeffrey and Evelyn fighting. And, you know, this is when Malcolm comes into James's room and says, you know, first time he beat her, I swore revenge. And, you know, Evelyn begged him not to attack for both their sakes. But Malcolm definitely still wants to kill him. That part seems, you know, 100% evident. And um, it's probably what he really feels. Um, but I think it's also an act for James. You know, but, you know, whatever it is, we've still got three more episodes of the storyline. Now, on to Josie, um, she's not really in the scene very much, but I love Jack Nance's performance so much, I gotta talk about it. Um, we've got Pete popping the cork and pouring a toast for him and Catherine, and you know, he says, wine comes in at the mouth, love comes in in the eye, I touch my glass to my lips, I look to you and sigh. And <laughs> Catherine just laughs and says, thank you, Pete. And then, you know, as if to, you know, try to find a compliment, she says, it's very lyrical. <laughs> and then, you know, he proudly says that it's eats. And, you know, then he says, you know, the only other limer, you know, the, the only other toast he knows is a limerick. And, you know, Catherine interrupts him uh, right there before, you know, embarrassing himself and her a little bit more uh, by calling in Josie. And, um, you know, she comes over in full maid uniform and, you know, Catherine says, well, I'll have or we'll have our appetizers now. And, um, you know, during this initial thing, Pete is absolutely enjoying a champagne and kind of ignoring the fact that Josie's right there in front of him in a maid costume. And we've got Catherine talking. Even though your station in this household has changed, I intend to show you all the respect and affection you deserve and put your maid caps on or maid's cap on. And, you know, this is when Pete finally kind of, you know, he, he, he tries to intercede a little bit and says, Catherine, aren't you being a little hard on her? I mean, she's still part of the family. And, um, you know, then Catherine makes her case and says, Josie had a hand in Andrew's death. Okay. So she's officially still lying about that. And she did everything in her power to destroy me. She's lucky. She's not hanging from a tree. So, whoa. Um, 
you know, lynching is way over the line right now, but I'm not surprised that she would kind of align herself with colonialism and, um, you know, like that kind of, um, white supremacist kind of thinking. Um, you know, apparently that was an acceptable level of racism in 1990. You know, at least she's, at least she's a bad guy and in general thought process. So I don't know, but Pete says, I don't believe it. Not the Josie I know, you know, so good for Pete, even though it's only in words and then he's not really doing much else. At least he's, you know, saying something out loud that he believes, you know, other, otherwise he kind of sits out on the defense for her from now on. I mean, you know, she probably because he knows that Catherine, you know, (laughs) you know, Catherine just, is the power that she is, you know? And then, you know, Catherine gives this, this further toast, you know, she says, here's to Ben Horn's double cross. Here's to Josie Packard's dirty deeds. And here's to the woman who brought them down. Here's to me. And then, you know, Pete just says, you know, here's to you poodle. And he's resigned and he feels like he can't mess with her on this one. And he's basically doing the, uh, the Ed move to Nadine and just letting her have it. Um, so, you know, Pete may not want much power himself, but he is able to recognize when someone else definitely has it. And, you know, speaking of Nadine now, (laughs) and really speaking of power, um, you know, the physical power that Nadine contains is on absolute display again, but, you know, it's not so charming this time. You know, we've got Coach Wingate, the wrestling coach, uh, saying, you know, boys, there's this great story about a football coach whose name escapes me at the time, who's dead set against having any black players on his team until someone brought him the finest black halfback anyone had ever seen. And, you know, he's making a statement about black racism alongside introducing the Civil War to the story. You know, I can't tell if the writers noticed that they had a parallel or not, but, you know, I, I wouldn't be shocked. But yeah, this also adds um, a parallel of an unreliable narrator, uh, to, you know, like like the Civil War miniseries kind of has, you know, like what's his name, you know, things like that. Um, the, the facts are less interesting than the narrative aimed at securing what I want. And, you know, what does Wingate want at the time? He just wants he, he just wants someone to win uh, to win for his team. And, you know, when he sees somebody, he's going to make all the logic around it. You know, then he says, and when what's-his-name saw him run 50 yards and no one laid a hand on him, he shouted, look at that Indian go. So, you know, just, you know, casual racism again um, from someone who's probably endured a ton of racism because Wingate is black. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know what kind of comedy, <laughs> you know, is, is it one of those things like, Oh God, that guy said it. it it's so wrong. Ha ha ha. And that's probably all it is. Um, but you know, the, then he kind of makes a certain point where he says, you know, the coach accepted that athlete's desire to compete. And, you know, then he calls up Nadine and says, and today that story applies to this woman's, this young girl's right to compete. So, in addition to it being her moral and constitutional right. So he's making a case for why he can look the other way on the fact that this woman is 35 years old and says, you know, it's like this, this, um, you can make a moral case for it and you can make a constitutional case for it that this student can compete. Uh, but anyway, 
how to prove it to his team, uh, he calls up Mike Nelson and, you know, Nadine whispers to him about, you know, it's like, I think we should go out or, you know, I want to go out, you know, let's go out. And, you know, Mike just stays on the fight itself. Um, you know, he tries to show her like where to put hands so that, you know, she can actually do the wrestling moves, et cetera. And, um, you know, eventually she flips him over onto the mat and, you know, she, she gets him in a neck hold and, um, you know, she almost breaks his neck and he says, you're breaking my neck. You know? And, uh, she says, you're right, Mike, this is like, it, this is kind of like necking. And, you know, she asks about going out on a date twice there during the sparring. And then, you know, she lifts him up over her head, airplane spins him, uh, throws him down on the ground hard and then pins him. And, um, you know, the, the team is looking on concerned at this point and the coach calls the match. And, um, then she says, now will you go out with me? So, you know, I mean, he never actually responds to her and this is legitimate physical abuse. You know, Nadine thinks she's proved something to him in battle, I think. And, you know, that should matter to him as, you know, persuasion for her argument. Um, but you know, you, you figure this is from the days of, you know, the rom-coms where all you have to do is talk to the girl enough, pressure her enough, ask her out enough, uh, you know, do something for her to prove that you're good enough. And then, of course, eventually she'll fall in love with you and, um, you know, you'll have a romance with her. And, you know, there, there's a lot of um, physical and mental manipulation in those movies, too, it seems like. Uh, you know, they certainly don't age well, most of them uh, from the 80s and the 90s. But, uh, you know, at this point, all Nadine did was physically bully him. And she thinks that's going to get him to say yes. Um, you know, if, if they were gender swapped, this would be absolutely unacceptable. Even I think in 1990, that would be unacceptable. Um, but you know, here the gender swap plays into it in comedy way because, you know, come on, a woman overpowering a man, absurdity, ha ha ha. But I'm glad in the next scene when Nadine's out of it, um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that it's also played for horror by the way of Mike as well. You know, in the next scene, Mike is beat up and, you know, he's stiff and he's walking over to Donna in the school hallway uh, at her locker. And, you know, he admits to her that Mrs. Hurley was his attacker and wants Donna to talk to her, you know, pretend that she's still uh, st that Donna's still his girlfriend or something. You know, And then says, this is serious. I'm going to end up in traction. <clears throat> so Mike is actually upfront about his situation at this point. And, um, you know, Donna here is not treating an assault victim seriously because she, he's a big, strong man who can take care of himself. And, you know, patriarchy works poorly in reverse. And, um, you know, it, it's probably played for comedy because, yeah, you know, it's like the, um, you know, bang, zoom to the moon, Alice. You know, that was still fairly accepted terminology back then you know hitting people is meant toward a certain amount of funny and you know then there's um like what ashley from twin peaks peaks talked about about microaggressions about you know like pulling hair means he likes you you know it's like all this stuff that um women are you know taught to put up with over this time you know, she probably kind of thinks that, you know, it's like, okay, fine, you can put up with some of this uh, finally. Because, you know, Mike was a supreme jerk to her uh, for a very long time, it seems like, at the beginning of this series. And, uh, you know, it's it's kind of like how Karma's coming back to get Mike, just like how um, Ben Horn is paying for his past right now. You know, we've got Mike paying for his, too. 
but you know about about Nadine's dream world that she's kind of living in right now. Like before this, it was kind of almost like a cocoon stage where she was, um, you know, healing from her reality by, you know, trying to find some way to make it better. But like right now, her appetite seems to be getting even stronger right now. And that's the only thing that's on display. Um, You know, it's like now she's kind of in a negative part of the dream, uh, fueled only by want, you know, rather than rather than healing. She's trying to, you know, she maybe she's lost in her own dream and, uh, you know, she's losing the thread of where she's supposed to be. And now she, you know, she's just um, treating Mike like he's a character in this in this scenario. And, um, you know, this is her goal and this is what she's going to get. So she's uh, fairly disassociated from the fact that Mike may have a thing to say about, um, you know, what she's trying to intend here. And it's just push, push, push. And I brought up Ben, um, and you know Ben Ben Horn is on his way to disassociating as well here. Um, you know he's got he's got all this furniture piled up on top of his desk. Um, you know, we, and and he's sitting smallly next to it along the wall. Uh, we we got a the the fox on top, the fox that uh, Leland pulled some uh, hair for to frame Ben as evidence. That's up on top. There's a green light just below it. And then um, on either side of the bottom of the tower, there's these chairs lit with, uh, I mean, they're, they're red chairs, but then they're lit with yellow light on the bottom edges. And, um, you know, Bobby walks in at that point, calls Mr. Horn once, uh, no response. And then uh, he walks over and sees Ben against the back wall by the secret exit, you know, to the right of his desk tower. Um, seemingly dejected scruffy that kind of stuff and um you know bobby's second mr horn is directed to the guy that he just found and uh you know he's like your your secretary told me to come in bobby briggs and um you know bobby's you know thrown and confused and off balance with this whole thing and he doesn't have any confidence anymore so ben's ben's talking to him you know it's like bobby do you know what you what you have to have in this life balance distance symmetry which he's trying to actually have with his life at this point um ben is genuinely on this kick to find all these things you know since before hank even told him about the one eye jacks takeover and you know um ben gets up and you know he's smiling and he's referring to the structure on his desk that he built you know like look it's a beautiful thing isn't it you know climbs up on his desk and, um, you know, Bobby just asked, you know, it's like, if you listen to the tape and, you know, they both make a joke about Leo, like, you know, surprise, Leo can master the technology. And, um, you know, Bobby just doesn't say anymore. He doesn't take that as an intro to make his case for what he's wanting. And, um, you know, Ben just says, you know, damn it, Bobby, what do you want? And, uh, you know, we could tell the old Ben is still in there for sure. And, um, you know, then, you know, in, instead of saying what he wants again, Bobby leads with Mr. Horn, I have great admiration for you. And um, <laughs> Ben says admiration is for poets and dairy cows. Uh, so, you know, it's for, um, you know, things that philosophize about not money like philosophers and uh, <laughs> things that get milked to make other people money like dairy cows. And um, 
you know, I, I think, well, you know, Ben is genuinely trying to find the balance, but, you know, he's also trying to redirect Bobby into helping him with his problem, holding on to Jack's, you know, he, he basically tells Bobby, it's like, you're standing in front of a skyscraper, a Leviathan that rips a hole in the clouds. Now, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? And uh, Bobby doesn't have any answer. And Ben answers for him, like, who's at the top? Who's in the penthouse? And then he says, that's who I am. Are you? And, you know, Bobby's still off balance. And he tries to put on some bravado, but he just can't. And he says, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> Ben Horn absolutely has Bobby pegged as a dairy cow. And, um, you know, he tells him, he, he tells his new dairy cow, opportunity knocks. And, you know, he hands Bobby a bag, a camera, et cetera, and says, I want you to follow Hank Jennings. I want you to chronicle his existence. Show me something that I don't know. And he echoes what Catherine said last episode about, you know, tell me something I don't know. Uh, when Josie came to her last episode, that's what she had to say. So, you know, we got knowledge of enemies is a thing that keeps the powerful in power. Um, you know, the, the a lack of information keeps them from rising above the rest. Um, so, you know, knowledge is power, basically, is the, the mantra here. And, um, you know, later on, <clears throat> we've got Bobby actually coming back with the results of that surveillance. And, um, you know, Bobby sees a mound in Ben's office of dirt, basically, with smoke coming from near it in the back. And, um, you know, there's a Confederate flag down, but it's displayed back in to the right. And, um, you know, ben, uh, Bobby says, you know, hey, Mr. Horn, how you, how you doing? And, um, you know, we get Ben in a close-up adding miniatures to his field. And, um, you know, Bobby just says, you know, what is this you're doing exactly? And, um, you know, Ben says, Gettysburg, day one, the South is winning. And, um, you know, Bobby keeps to his points from here. He says, you know, found Hank, got those pictures you wanted. And then we've got Ben, you know, he comes up and he shows that he's in his general code already. Um, and, um, you know, he takes the pictures from Bobby. He looks at them and Ben, you know, likes the shot of Hank with the other visible faces and says, you know, like, how much am I paying you? And, you know, we have, you know, Bobby says, we haven't discussed money. And, and Ben like whips out some cash from his coat and says, well, consider this your first raise. Come back tomorrow and we'll talk full-time position. So, you know, he's still acting as if the civil war is a thing that's happening. When, but he's still able to talk business with Bobby here. You know, it's almost like he's got two levels of frequencies going on at the same exact time. Him looking to achieve balance, but, you know, he's kind of got a dissociation going on between himself at this point, too. Uh, because, you know, he wants to battle um, and win Gettysburg, but he also wants to win the ownership battle at One-Eyed Jacks. So he's battling on both levels at this point. Now, how do we get human connection enhancing characters? Because that's the other thing that we see that kind of helps coax things into existence almost. You know, it's like the, the people on the right path grow toward light. And um, human connection really does um, enhance these characters. You know, the people who can connect with other people tend to do better than the people falling into delusion because they feel like they don't have anybody. And the, the first people to connect in this episode really are Ed and Norma. You know, Ed's at the double R counter and he's he's ready to fall into this darkness like everybody else around him. Um, 
you know, um, Norma asks him, you know, it's like, you going to eat that pie or just push it around in my China? And, um, you know, he says, you don't want to hear about my problems. And, um, you know, Norma does coke it, co- uh, coax it out of him. You know, she says, you know, we used to talk about everything. We can still talk, Ed. So she's trying to reconnect right here. <clears throat> and the first thing Ed goes into is goes into the past. You know, he talks about remember. Um, <clears throat> you know, we've got him saying, remember when we were kids, all the plans we made? And, you know, Norma's smiling at him at this point. You know, it's like, like we were just waiting for our lives to begin, planning all the stuff we do when when it did. And, you know, the Twin Peaks theme starts to play here, which, you know, kind of seems like, you know, they are the heart of the show at this point. Um, and, um, you know, Ed, Ed says, you know, sometimes life starts before we knew it. And, you know, this is when Norma stops smiling at him. And he says, suddenly you're halfway through living and all those plans, they just don't mean a damn thing. Living my life, Norma. I just don't like it much. And, um, you know, Norma, she, she slides her hand into his at this point and says, we can make new plans. So... You know, for Ed, this is a connection of hope. But, you know, as she says it, we also see Hank's arm come into frame watching them, you know, visibly clenching the counter. And, you know, from a plot point of view, we know that that means there's clouds rolling in uh, for Ed and Norma, even as they're, you know, coming together after a long time apart. And, you know, we, we see Hank's hand showing off the domino before his moves, uh, before his arm moves out of frame. And, um, you know, the, the disembodied arm without a head or a body even really uh, is a nice touch. And, um, you know, it kind of gives the impression of like a, you know, Hank as a force rather than as a, just a person, you know, here. All right, so Ed and Norma's scene is pretty quick, but over the course of this episode, we're going to focus a lot on the Briggs family because they are all connecting today. So first, we're going to focus on Bobby because, you know, he's in the first scene. Um, You know, we see him basically following the money. You know, it's like we're going to follow somebody who's powerful. And, um, you know, he's kind of looking for a a business-level father figure in a way with... um, or, you know, at least being in the presence of greatness or at least power. And, um, you know, he, he wants to, to <laughs> you know, it's like he doesn't want to actually extort Ben based on this, um, based on this conversation. You know, he talks with Ben and, you know, Ben basically sees him as a dairy cow. And, um, you know, he ends up um, following this path into helping Ben because you know i i think what it is is if it worked for ben to get him into power to get him into that penthouse uh suite um it might work for bobby too and you know also he's hearing this message from ben about you know balance and um you know it's a haphazard <laughs> it's a haphazard message but you know this is probably something that he would also get from his father you know, a message about finding balance in some kind of capacity. Because, I mean, that just seems like the way Briggs would speak. You know, in instead of um, trying to get a big payday from Ben, he decides to take, take the opportunity when opportunity knocks. And, um, you know, he does follow Hank Jennings and chronicles his existence enough to get those photos. And, you know, he comes right back. So he's actually doing a very... Um, 
you know, go get him kind of job for Ben here. And, you know, then he's connecting with Audrey in a way, you know, it's, uh, mind you, he, you know, he's completely forgotten about Shelly at this point. And so has the show in a way. Um, and, you know, he's moved on with his, you know, big business, big payday kind of mindset. And, um, you know, he's into flirting with Audrey here too. Um, but, you know, I mean, if, if you look at it from the way he was in the pilot and everything, he's always juggled at least two ladies at once. So this isn't exactly out of character for him either, which is probably why, you know, it doesn't rub people extremely wrong to the point where that's one of the things they bring up about the bad part of season two or whatever. Because, um, you know, he does come back around on Shelly and yeah. Anyway, Bobby does follow Audrey's lead, too. You know, it's like instead of trying to kiss again, you know, he just notices what's not going to happen when it's not going to happen. And um, it ends up just, you know, earning him a bonus and a job with her dad for competent work. Yeah, that's the beginning of the episode, Bobby. And at the end of the episode, he's in the final scene with with his mom and his dad. And um you know, it's a, it's a new exterior shot of a house. You know, we've never actually seen the Briggs house. Uh, the telescope by the window is a nice touch to, uh, you know, kind of tie it into the major's job. Um, but, you know, Bobby comes into a dark house and, you know, when he flips on the lights after taking his, um, you know, his overshirt off or whatever, you know, he's scared by his mom is just sitting there and he has genuine heart to give to her, too. You know, it's like, what are you doing in here sitting in the dark? And, you know, she just says, you know, nothing, just sitting here. And then, you know, he, he, he connects to her and he's like, well, we'll read a book or something, will you? It's creepy, you know? <laughs> it's like this this relationship is absolutely believable, um, you know, even though we've never really seen them talk to each other before. It's like, wow, we can actually see them talk. And, um, you know, Betty really starts to cry here. And um, Bobby says, you know, Dad, right? He'll be back. And, um, you know, she says she's not so sure this time, but, you know, Bobby genuinely attempts to comfort her here. You know, I mean, sure, he gets out a cigarette, but, um, you know, he talks about that double R vision uh, that that his major had in the season two premiere. You know, I mean, he he paraphrases the words, um, you know, very, very um, clearly, like, you know, he was really listening to the major at that point. And, you know, he, he says, you know, it's about my future, you know, good stuff. And, you know, th this obviously made a big impression on Bobby that, you know, his dad delivered him this message that, you know, he really, you know, somebody really believed in him. And I think that's what he's looking for with Ben Horn, but he really gets when he's at home this episode with his mom. And, you know, Betty smiles too at this point and says, your father's an extraordinary man. And um, <laughs> Bobby calls it like he sees it and says, you know, my father's a deeply weird individual, but he has a lot more going on under his hat than most people. That's for sure. So he could tell, you know, even even while he's doing all this rebellion stuff, he could totally tell what was happening with where his dad actually was. And then Betty shares something that um, she hasn't shared with Bobby before. And uh, she says, you know, sometimes when I'm sleeping, he runs his fingers through my hair. And, um, you know, Bobby reaches for her hand at this point, kind of like how um, Norma and Ed connected by the hand. You know, then, then Betty continues. He thinks I didn't know. He thinks I don't notice, but I do. And then, you know, she really starts to cry. 
Yeah, I mean, this goes along with what uh, Charlotte Stewart was saying in multiple interviews, in multiple books over the years. You know, how she she knows that Betty and Garland had a genuine love story. And um, she made a case to Caleb Deschanel uh, about, you know, like during this scene about that particular thing. And, you know, it's included here and it worked well. Um, And, you know, this is... This is when the lights go all the way out. You know, I mean, it's due to a transformer or whatever it is that goes down. But, um, you know, there's also a hum here, you know, and, and the hum is different than the one in the Great Northern that brought the giant. Um, so, like, is the hum a different tim- t- you know, timbre before? Because um, it... It, it's a different shape of building. It's a different tone of building. Maybe it's made out of different wood. Um, you know, maybe it's just a more positive tone than, you know, with Ben's. Um, but anyway, the major shows up right then. And, um, you know, he's there in a World War One pilot uniform. And he's asking, how long have I been gone? And before I talk about the major, I want to talk about how Briggs possibly found his way there. I mean, sure, um, he's he's said to have, you know, rematerialized in the forest when he's re-remembering and talking in the uh, in the sheriff's department. But as far as right here, it almost seems like he just, you know, apparates right in front of them. Um, and it makes me think, you know, it's like, the thing that he put in the little note that uh, Bobby opened in the capsule in season three, um, you know, it's like make sure to keep some soil in your pockets to find your way home. Essentially, uh, that's the way I look at it. You know, it's like what ground are you going to come back to? And you know, in thematically at least, in the case of this um, this episode, Bobby's memory of that vision is the soil, and so is so is Betty's memory of, um, you know, her hair being touched at night and, you know, between the two of them saying it aloud now, um, you know, Bobby and Betty is, you know, they're, they're the beacon as best as I can figure out for, uh, for Briggs to kind of, you know, show up right then. And, you know, Betty, Betty runs right over to him, you know, saying Garland and, you know, giving him a big hug. And, you know, Bobby um, stands there in awe and, you know, he's told to put out the cigarette, which is a callback to season one, except this time he absolutely does. You know, Bobby does it willingly and immediately. And um, then um, then his dad says, then I'd like you to fix me a cocktail, a strong one, if you don't mind. And, you know, he says, sure, dad. And, um, you know, just does it. And, um, you know, the, the cigarette cycle basically shows Bobby changing toward the positive here, possibly at least, you know, momentarily while he's under the, uh, the influence of his immediate family, but also, um, cigarettes have been a, a sign of like the negative frequency or whatever. And so has alcohol in a way, um, but why does why does the major need it now? I mean, is it to basically numb the transition back into a physical world frequency or something? Um, I mean, Sarah Sarah uses her connection. I mean, she she basically uses alcohol to mute her connection to the metaphysical frequencies with alcohol. You know, it's like why why wouldn't it help the major similar you know similarly disconnect and come back to the world? I could see that. 
But yeah, then there's love on display. You know, the major and Betty, they kiss when Bobby leaves and, you know, they continue to hold each other to the end of the episode. And, um, you know, she asks, is everything all right, dear? And he says, no, dear, not exactly. And, you know, they're embracing in this medium shot. But then it cuts to, um, you know, lightning filled gray rolling clouds at night. So, you know, the the, um, <laughs> you know, Hank is like the physical presence that gets in the way of Ed and Norma. And then these clouds coming uh, show that, um, you know, Betty and the major uh, might have things, you know, doom rolling in as well. And, um, you know, like. I, I think what it is is, you know, their love is supposed to weather the storm in a way or that, you know, hopefully they can. Um, but, you know, we got to ask, where was the major? You know, OK, earlier in the episode, we've got Colonel Riley being introduced to Cooper by Harry at the sheriff's station. Um, you know, he's investigating the Briggs disappearance. And then we hear, you know, um, he asks, when uh, when you were at the site, did you notice any wildlife in the area? Birds, owls, any visual contact? So, you know, I'm thinking, I mean, birds and owls. OK, yeah, the um, the they're they're not what they seem okay um but you know visual contact is like seeing something that solidifies it kind of like you know like how what lucy was worried about in part four season three with um you know like um you know how does the thermostat keep working if nobody's seeing it or nobody's watching it <laughs> you know forces just keep happening but um you know it's like if if you get visual contact it get it, it gets real so, you know, Cooper and Harry ask him, you know, it's like, okay, just level with us. You know, it's like, we know about the monitors, the messages from deep space pertaining to me. And, um, you know, Colonel Riley <laughs> shifts to best get your facts straight. These monitors are pointed at deep space, but the messages we intercepted that Briggs showed you were sent from right here in these woods. Now, where, now where they were sent to is another question. Okay, they're broadcasted from here to question mark. You know, the question mark is, where have they gone? Kind of like where Cooper went when he was speaking with the giant. I feel like, you know, there's a, you know, point A and point B there as well. And honestly, part of me wonders if those messages were that conversation, like being broadcast from from the woods where cooper was all the way out to wherever he went to meet the giant who knows but anyway they they ask colonel um does this have anything to do with the white lodge and you know riley says that's classified and then he says garland briggs is the best pilot i've ever known he was born with the with hardware most of us only dream about i can tell you this his disappearance has implications that go so far beyond national security, the Cold War seems like a case of the sniffles. I know it's nowhere here yet, but I mean, that that sounds to me kind of like Illuminati versus Masons and like all these other things going on in secret history of Twin Peaks. And, um, you know, Dougie, Dougie Milford and Briggs from that book have a meeting sometime before this, apparently. It'll be interesting to see in... Um, it, when we get to secret history, exactly how well that matches up with this particular timeline. As far as um, as far as Briggs's actor, Don Davis in Essential Wrapped in Plastic, he basically says, "My character had been taken to the lodge, and had had further information revealed to him, 
that was then blocked from consciousness. It would enable me to provide spiritual guidance to Cooper. They said that I had come back wearing clothing from my journey. That, to me, meant that I had traveled in time. So, you know, there's that whole thing about remember. And, um, you know, like Gordon Cole remembering the Jeffrey's dream. And then, and then, um, and then Albert saying, oh, yeah, I remember that, too. Like, you know, before that, it's almost like, you know, they, they couldn't get into that space to remember that frequency of, of uh, memory. So that's kind of, you know, in, in keeping with um, Lodge spaciness that, um, you know, it's like the, the information is veiled until you need it or until you can remember it, one or the other. And, um, or I guess that's the same thing. <laughs> one and the same. Um, but yeah, I mean, as far as the time travel stuff goes, you know, that figures in with you know, the way Lynch uses Annie and fire walk with me among other things. Um, and Briggs says, how long have I been gone? And Betty says two days. And the major says strange. And he takes off his, um, his pilot cap, um, which coincides with the lights turning back on, honestly. Um, you know, and then he says, you know, seemed much shorter. So, you know, time travel via lodge space. Okay. Uh, should have, it should have felt longer based on expectations. Like, you know, you should have been gone or, um, it, it seems like it should have felt longer to him rather than shorter based on expectations. But is that another inversion kind of like how lodge space, uh, speaks backwards. Now, another thing I do notice about it is, you know, later on, um, Cooper was only gone for about 24 hours when he goes in in episode 29. Um, though, you know, he didn't make it all the way through. He ends up dividing in half. So, um, you know, one day equals half of a trip and then two days equals a full trip through. I don't know. Um, you know, Briggs came back and he seems to have come back whole even though he comes back with, you know, veiled memories and everything else. So either he's a messenger or he made it all the way through the, uh, the white lodge. And, um, yeah, I, I kind of think he made it through his whole process and he came back whole because he has perfect courage though. He came back and, you know, he doesn't feel like everything's all right. Not exactly as he puts it. Um, you know, the, those clouds rolling in, you know, it's like maybe he maybe he came back with enough information to give to Cooper to uh, do his part about getting into the lodge, et cetera, et cetera. And um, that's what the rolling clouds are. But, you know, the, these rolling clouds. OK, there's electricity literally in the air with the lightning. Is it is it kind of a vibe like, you know, Bob's in the air? Um, electricity is in the air. The the lodge space, the red room is in the air. Um is music in the air you know it's like all this all this doom um does have lodgy implications um and you know then of course there's you know coming darkness um is it an unbridled negative frequency um you know there's all of that but then does the major you know at least temporarily know that he'll be leaving soon you know it's like does he know that he's only going to be here for a short time left does he know that he's going to be captured by Wyndham Earl? You know, it's like, I, I kind of feel like there's a certain amount of knowledge that he may have at this point. And this would also be the beginning of the time to connect with Cole, et cetera, for, you know, that retcon in, um, in part 17, 
you know, the, the planning against Judy thing, the Zhao day, you know, that, that, um, that lore dump that, um, David Lynch delivers as Gordon Cole at the beginning of part 17 in season three. Yeah. We, we can take a look again at that when, um, when Gordon comes back to town, um, you know, to kiss Shelly, et cetera, I'll, 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 um, you know, <laughs> see if there's any room for a Judy conversation then, or if that's just a weird retcon that, um, you know, happened in some other frequency after Cooper split. Yeah. Cause right now all we get is like a little bit of an ominous future and, um, not really a whole lot of information other than, um, Briggs probably traveled back into the time period of world war one, you know, like the, uh, 1910s or whatever. But yeah, like I said, I'm glad that he was there with Betty because connecting with people seems to give the ability to, you know, weather the storm and to weather the upcoming uh, problems. You know, it's like if we're together, we can make it that kind of feeling. And, um, you know, it's like I said, with Ed and Norma, um, with the impending Hamps, with the impending Hank storm um, and. Um, you know, the, the major and Betty can also do it. And, you know, that, that basically connects to me, the overall themes of this episode is, you know, love and connection is what you need to be able to weather fear and, um, you know, the darkness, you know, it's like, if you're not focused on fear, you're focused on love. And if you have love right in front of you with somebody else that can shine the light through the darkness coming. And, um, I'd say that main theme of Twin Peaks gets us all the way through to the end of the episode. So, uh, yeah, you have been listening to the Blue Rose Task Force podcast, a production of Ruminations Radio Network and TV Obsessive Radio. If you resonate with what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review our show. And we would love to connect with you on Twitter at Blue Rose TF Pod, on Counter Social at Blue Rose Task Force Podcast, and Instagram and Facebook at Blue Rose Task Force. You can find me at JPB underscore Little Green on Twitter and John underscore the underscore Peaky on Instagram. Visit RuminationsRadioNetwork.com for additional great shows such as Ruminations of the Red Room and Tony's Tall Tales. And join all of the hosts from Ruminations Radio Network, myself included, on our Discord channel, Ruminations Radio Cafe. Find any number of classic 25YL articles and content on many other TV shows at 25yearslatersite.com and tvobsessive.com. If you want to be part of our next mailbag episode, send any comments, questions, or feedback to Blue Rose Task Force Podcast at gmail.com or you know hit us up at any of our social medias. And we'll see you next week as we cover episode 20, which is the 21st overall episode of Twin Peaks. Until then, listeners, I'll see you in my dreams.